welcome to this month's Fraud Talk episode. My name is Andy McNeil, and I'm the director of research here at the ACFE. I'm excited to be speaking with Kelly Richmond Pope today. Kelly is a professor at DePaul University in Chicago, and she's also a filmmaker. She most recently released a documentary called All the Queen's Horses, a film that gives viewers a 360-degree look into a $53 million embezzlement scheme that lasted almost 20 years in a small town in Illinois. Kelly, can you tell me and our listeners a little bit about your work and specifically how you ended up in the anti-fraud field and as a professor of accounting? Sure. Well, I, um, I'm a native of Durham, North Carolina, and um, when I was growing up, my neighbor, who I thought was somebody that we all knew, um, actually was engaged in a pretty large embezzlement case. And so that, I think, shaped me, and I really didn't realize how it shaped me until years to come. But um, when I decided to go to, go to, go to college, um, I majored in accounting and then decided to go to graduate school and did my master's in accounting and my PhD in accounting at Virginia Tech. And it was when I was at Virginia Tech that my research area was in the area of ethics. And I was fascinated by how people rationalize good and bad ethical decisions. And so... After leaving Virginia Tech, my research really took more of the path of understanding ethical lapses or ethical breakdowns, and that's really what led me to the fraud space, and it led me to the fraud space because I was, again, fascinated by how I believe anyone is capable of committing um, a white-collar crime or rationalizing an unethical decision, and so it was that that my belief that I think we all are susceptible to those types of decisions that I started going around the country and interviewing white-collar felons, whistleblowers, and victims of fraud. So because I was naturally talking to people on camera, when the Dixon, Illinois story hit the newspaper, I thought, wow, this would be a great story to do a documentary about. So I did a film fellowship program with an organization based in Chicago called Cartem Quinn Films and really developed the whole idea of All the Queen's Horses in that fellowship program. Um, After I finished the fellowship program, I was invited to work uh, exclusively with Cartem Quinn Films to develop um, the project into a feature-length documentary, and here we are. It's been a pretty exciting journey, it sounds like. I think it would be exciting only because I'm probably the least person that you would suspect that would make a film, make a documentary. But what I like to tell people when they ask me, how did you end up in this space, is I say that numbers tell stories. And so what I'm doing now is just using the skills of a camera to help explain what those numbers are saying. Yeah, you don't usually hear a lot about accounting professors making documentaries, but that explanation is great. I can absolutely see the connection there of how where you can use that perspective to tell the story, and especially this story. So rewinding a little bit, when and how did you actually first hear about the Rita Crundwell case? Well, I live in Chicago, and Dixon, Illinois is about 100 miles, it's about 100 miles west of where I am in Chicago. So it hit the Chicago Tribune immediately, and I remember the first headline said, City Comptroller of Dixon, Illinois, embezzles $30 million. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of money for a really small town. And so immediately I started thinking, you know, again, this would be a great story. And as the story evolved, the number got larger and larger and settled at $53 million. Now, if that's what was reported, I'm sure that that number could probably even go higher if all the documents were able to show what the true amount was. 
but 53 million is where we ended. So I just thought it was just phenomenal that this teeny tiny town of 16,000 people could even have that much money and that one person could steal that much money. And were you familiar with the town before the story broke? Had you ever been to Dixon? I had never been to Dixon before. Dixon is known, well known as the boyhood home of President Ronald Reagan. So I had never been to Dixon and and really never had a need to go to Dixon. Um, I, I rarely travel west outside of the city. So no, I wasn't familiar with it. But what what's important about Dixon is I think Dixon represents um, small town USA. Maybe maybe not even small town, but just any organization USA. And so I think that's why the story is so important. And with that significance to the the monetary value, I think uh, connects to that even more, right? When you're looking at a small town of 16,000 people, like you said. Um, so you mentioned that this was all part of a fellowship program that you were part of and that you heard about the case. Can you tell me a little bit more about the process of turning hearing about the case into a documentary project? When you have a project like this, what's key is finding people that are willing to share their story and finding people that are connected enough that can give you an, uh, a view of the minds, if not of the residents, of the perpetrator or the person that discovered the fraud. And in, in the case of All the Queen's Horses, All the Queen's Horses is about how this fraud can happen. Because Rita Cronwell, which is the perpetrator, did not denied an interview, the opportunity to be interviewed for the film, this is really about how this can happen, how it happened in Dixon, but how it can happen anywhere. So with that being sort of the umbrella that we were working around or working under, we wanted to find people that had experience with the, with the, with the case. And for me, what was key, once uh, Rita declined an interview, what was really key for me is talking to the whistleblower. And the whistleblower in our film is Kathy Swanson. And so I think that once you hear about a fraud and once the shock is over of, wow, this person stole this money, the next question is, well, how was it discovered? And then the, second, the third question after that is, well, how could it have happened? And so that's where our film comes in because it fills that void of, of talking to the person that discovered it, but then explaining how this happened. And I think it does a great job doing that. I've been lucky enough to learn a little bit more about the film and all the interviewees that you talked to. And um, you mentioned that Rita herself declined to be interviewed. Have you ever spoken with her or were you able to connect with her personally at all? I wasn't. She, um, I have not. I've written to her. But what was great about the way the film was developed is we didn't need Rita to tell that story. Rita just provided um, a reason to, to talk about this. But what Rita did, I think, brought light to why we need to bring these issues to the forefront. Because what I like to say when I talk about the film is we all have a Rita in our lives. And when I say that, I don't mean somebody that will steal from you $53 million, but somebody that we unconditionally trust, whether it's our boss, whether it's a colleague, or whether it's somebody that reports to us. If they tell us something, we accept it for face value, and we, and we just move on. And we all have those people in our lives. And it's for that, it's for those reasons why this is such an important story to tell. So we could tell this story without Rita. We have archival footage of Rita. We have a lot of people talking about Rita. But what I like to say is the viewer gets to know Rita just like the town, the residents knew her. They really didn't know her. So you know of her. You know what she did. You know how she stole the money. You know what she spent the money on. But and I, I felt like that was enough. You, you felt like you met enough of her to tell a 
a feature-length documentary about the story. If there were one question that you could ask Tarita, though, do you have one in mind? On the, in those super quiet moments, whether it's early in the morning or super late at night, how did she really settle her spirit? Because she was the only one that was carrying this burden for such a long time. And it's really hard to carry things. I mean, emotionally, humans are not wired to, to keep that type of secret only to yourself. So I would really want to ask her how troubling it was for her over all these years to keep this quiet from everyone. I think that's a great question. I think that's one that a lot of people could relate to in talking to fraudsters as well. This particular case, you said it, it sort of uh, raised your interest the second you heard about it. And I mean, this was a few years ago. It's been studied for a few years now. Why do you think it still resonates so much today? And um, do you think it's going to continue resonating in the future? We focus so much on what the person did and what they spent the money on. But we don't focus enough on how it was discovered and how it happened. And so I think because our film focuses on those two issues, I think that it will remain relevant for a very long time. There are a lot of outlets that did that covered this story, but I would argue that no one has covered it in the manner that the documentary covers uncovers it, and that's why I think it's applicable and important and ha- and will have a long life because we didn't focus on the sensational the sensational aspects of what happened, but we focused on the aspects that could happen anywhere. And so I think that's why this will remain relevant and will stay important. Have you heard from people that have viewed the documentary um, any sort of personal connection they've made or, or maybe some, some tip that they've taken away and said, oh, now I need to look at this situation differently or any sort of awareness that it's raised? I had the honor to be invited back to Rita's house. So the, all, all of Rita's assets were auctioned off and the family that purchased her house reached out to me and said, would you like to come and screen the film at her home? So we actually brought the film back to the scene of the crime. And residents that were um, friends of this new family came, and I would say there was about 65 people that did a private screening where they were able to view the film. And it was amazing to watch the emotion that they had. And what I realized is I am, this is, this is their life that is on screen. This person actually stole from these people and it was it was amazing how many questions the film answered for them because again the only thing they really knew was the money was stolen and she bought horses and that was it but understanding how it happened and why it happened they didn't have that so I think just watching their faces and talking to people afterwards you were really able to see the impact that the film had on them, the positive impact that the film had on them by answering questions that they never either had the opportunity to ask or they asked and they were never answered. Wow, that's that's a pretty powerful experience, I can imagine, both for you as the presenter of the film and then for those watching. I can imagine that being a a pretty impactful moment. It was, And, and we're actually going back to Dixon October 28th and 29th um, to do two days and just have a free screening for anybody that wants to come just to help the community heal and to answer those questions that others had. So this was a private event, but we want to open it up and have the opportunity to use this as a vehicle for healing. 
Well, that brings me to another question I was actually hoping to ask is what has been the reception to your film by the Dixon community? Was it something when you were filming that they received positively? Was it something that felt like you were pushing into an open wound? How did they respond to you? Well, it's interesting because this has been such a long process. This documentary filmmaking has been a five-year process. So early on, I think it was much easier to talk to people than it was when we were going back last summer because people were ready to move on. So I think we've we've evolved. We've gone through like the like a product life cycle of this of this story. But I think that it's it's mixed. You know, you have some people that want to hear more and want to know more, and you have some people that just don't want to talk about this anymore. One of the reasons why I thought the film was important for Dixon residents to see, as well as citizens across the globe, is that. Oftentimes when a fraud happens, we adopt the belief that the perpetrator has been removed and everything is fine. And often that's not true. Often there are internal control weaknesses that we need to address. There are trust issues that we need to really be serious and, and, and reflect upon. And so just removing Rita from the, from, the, from the town and putting her in federal prison isn't the only thing that needed to be improved. And so I think the film really does a great job of showing that, yeah, this person did something bad, but there's some other parties that are accountable, and we need to talk about that. So I think the film is really good at doing that. Have you been able to be a part of that discussion with the community members at all following the film, or has your connection to the community really just been through the film itself? When I had the screening at Rita's house, um, the Q&A after was not just about the film, but really about internal controls, about what is the difference between an audit versus a forensic audit. Like people really wanted to understand, could this happen again? And so I would suspect that when we go back to Dixon at the end of the month, we're going to have the same kind of um, community town hall feeling where people are asking questions. A lot of people wanted to know, was Rita profiting from the film? Was I profiting from the film? And goodness gracious, documentary filmmaking is a very expensive thing. So <laughs> the answer to those questions would definitely no. But um, things just, they needed to have a platform to ask questions. And so I was, I was thankful that I could be there to, to answer those. I'm sure they were thankful for that as well. Do you have a moment or an experience that stands out to you as the most interesting or most surprising that uh, you experienced during the filming or the making of this documentary? I can tell you what's the most surprising now is um, we are now in the process of receiving phone calls and inquiries from people that now want to talk that were much closer to Rita than we could find when we were actually filming. So we are actually in the process of going back to Dixon to do some really critical interviews with some key people that really could either um, be like a part two to the film or expand the current film. So what I'm, what I'm surprised by is the response of, wait, wait, I want to talk to you now. And my, my first response to them when that happens is, well, where were you five years ago? We've been trying to talk to you for years. And so what I think is important that I've learned and I always want to share with people is if you don't like the story that's being told, you have to be a part of that story. So if you, if you want 
the, if you want a certain message out, then you have to be a part of that change. And so that's what I like about documentary filmmaking is because the goal is to really establish the truth. And But you need people that are willing to share that truth. Otherwise, the story gets shaped based on what I think or what my editor thinks. And if you don't want that to happen, you have to be a part of that story. Wow. And that actually goes back to you were talking about being, you know, presenting the truth. And that's so, something that so many fraud examiners can relate to and in trying to get the sources of that truth as well. So I think from a documentary perspective, but also just from a fraud examination perspective. Absolutely. Understanding the truth and presenting an unbiased opinion or an unbiased case is, is key to what we need to do. And so you, you see the same principles, the same guiding principles um, that certified fraud examiners live by and operate under are really the same principles that documentary filmmakers op operate under. You want to uncover the truth. You don't want your personal bias to, to come through, but you want people to form whatever opinion that they're going to form with the information, with the truth, with the facts that you're presenting. With that in mind, has this affected how you teach at all? Are you using lessons learned from the process in your classroom? So I have um, updated the way I teach and train uh, years ago. So I, I use a lot of filmmaking and short clips and a lot of video in my classes anyway. So this, just, it's, this is just what I've always done. So this isn't really any different for me. But I think that visual storytelling is a very powerful way to connect with the empathetic side of people because what they end up seeing is often they see themselves in the story that's being depicted on screen. And I think that's key to change. And sometimes when you don't have that connection, you will continue to see these broad cases that we see. I don't think that it's no surprise the rise of crime investigative type stories we're seeing, whether it's on Netflix whether it's Hulu, whether it's Amazon, or whether it's the big screen. We are seeing, we are inundated with, the, with fraud, fraud and crime stories. And I think that people are fascinated by them, but I think they're fascinated by it because those stories draw you in. And I think that when, you, when you're drawn in by a good story, that's when you can really, really invoke change. And that's what I hope that I'm able to do. Have you ever challenged your students to do anything based on your experience with the documentary from a project perspective? Absolutely. Um, what I often do when I introduce the documentary to the students is I don't tell them we're going to watch a film about the largest municipal fraud in U.S. history. I never say that. What I say is, I'm going to ask you a question. If you walked into the classroom and saw a bag, a paper bag, sitting on the table filled with money, tell me what are the first couple of things that you think of. And I write those questions on the board. And they might say, they may think, does the room have cameras? How old am I? Um, what time does the next class come in? Um, have I passed a CPA exam? Have I passed a CFE exam? They're starting to ask these questions. And so what my goal is to show them you're rationalizing making a bad decision. With that, that is what Rita Cronwell thought about the city of Dixon and those bank accounts. There were no controls. No one was watching, and she started taking. That's how I introduced what happened in Dixon. Because if you think about what she did, and you think about human behavior, how many of us would walk by an open safe filled with money and just keep walking? And, and that's what Dixon represented to Rita. Or at least 
how many of us would walk by that safe and not start running through those questions in our mind, right? Are there cameras? All those things. Right. And, you know, how many of us would turn it in? How many of us would doubt that process? You know, so that, that's who she was. So my goal is really to help people understand or self-reflect and understand how this person actually did this and then maybe question, them, question their own judgment. Would you do it? Maybe, maybe not. But at least you got it. At least it's forcing you to think about it. And I like that you're forcing students to think about it before they get out into the real world where you don't want them to be thinking about it for the first time. Absolutely. Because they're going to be approached. And I mean, and it's not necessarily that they're going to be approached with, hey, come steal this money. But they could be approached with a gray area that could go either way. And so, you know, you need these stories to stick with you when you are approached with the gray. Because that's when you need to think about, well, if I do this, this could happen, but if I don't do this, this won't happen. And so that's what I hope that my approach to teaching and training really, um, really changes the way a person thinks about when they're presented with those kinds of situations. Okay. Well, you've shared a few uh, lessons with us already that you've learned, but are there any other personal or professional lessons or takeaways that you um, got from this whole project? If this can happen in Dixon, you know it's everywhere. I mean, Dixon is the most unlikely suspect, a town, 16,000 people, annual budget between 6 and $8 million, and one person steals $53 million over 20 years, and the person that discovers it is a by-mistake city employee, you know? Like, those, none of those variables seem to make any sense, and it's why that, this is so important and so powerful that if it's happening there, it can happen anywhere. Um, another lesson that I love to say is that don't let the fact that this story is about a municipality and think that this doesn't apply to corporate or think that this doesn't apply to the nonprofit sector because Dixon is just a lens. But through that lens, we can see a lot of different ways that this can happen, whether you're a small, medium, or large organization. Is there a top tip that you would give to organizations, whether municipalities or nonprofit or corporate, based on this case? Making sure your leaders, whomever they may be, have a basic understanding of financial statements. That's the first thing. And second thing, and this may even become maybe first, is making sure that you are encouraging an environment where people can question. And a lot of people say that they do, but really a lot of people don't. So you need to think about the kind of leader that you are to make sure that you are surrounding yourself by people that are, are open and comfortable with saying, you know what, that just doesn't make sense. You know, you need one or two of those on your team, so make sure you have that. Um, and, and I think that would, that, that's our key to success. And just based on the research that the ACFE does, I mean, there, the uh, report to the nation every two years shows us how a fraud is discovered more frequently by a whistleblower. Um, or tip, I'm sorry, by a tip. And who is that tip often, often from? An employee. Well, in order for that to consistently be successful, we have to make sure that we are creating speak-up cultures where somebody can come forward. Take Kathy Swanson, our whistleblower in, in All the Queen Sources. Had she not felt empowered and comfortable enough to bring that information to Mayor Burke, where would we be? Rita might still be doing this, and where would we be? So you need to really think about your true culture and making sure that you have people that would speak up and that they're engaged enough within their organization to speak up if they notice something. 
It's great that they were able to find the fraud through the whistleblower tip that did arise. And you mentioned a few minutes ago about making sure that um, leaders can read financial statements and understand the finances of the organization. Are there any other things that you think could have helped Dixon catch Rita sooner than it did? Really making sure your staff auditors are truly understanding the importance of every aspect of what they're doing in an audit. Because I know that when we, when we send our students out into the world, oftentimes they think that that first one or two years on an audit is so not important. But a lot of the embezzlement cases or fraud cases that you see in general are simple. And it's often very simple techniques that are used to conceal. And so I think making sure that your staff auditors are understanding fraud techniques, understanding fraud schemes, and understanding how that happens, I think is really important too. And we're starting to see more of a change in that in the way that we are teaching students, but I think we need to continue that. So teaching auditing alongside of fraud detection and prevention is key. Because when we think about who is on these audits, it's typically staff that have fewer years of experience than, say, a senior person. So making sure that they have the proper skills is key. And then also knowing when to probably report up what they find if it doesn't quite seem correct, I would imagine, is part of that as well. Sure, but that goes back to that, you know, establishing that speak-up culture and making sure that that senior or that manager or that senior manager that you have to report to has created an open line of communication where that person does feel comfortable and not intimidated to come to you. That's a really good point. We think about that speak-up culture in organizations a lot, but, you know, applying that to firms as well and audit teams, that's a really, really good point. Well, and the last question I had for you today is, what do you most hope that other people, and specifically fraud examiners, are going to take away from your documentary? I hope that they take away the fact that fraud can often be very simple. And I think that we spend a lot of time talking about a lot of techniques, We spend a lot of time training on a lot of sophisticated methods, but I think what we have to remember that fraud often can be very basic and very simple, and sometimes so basic and so simple is hard to detect. And in this case, there really is not a reason why this should not have been detected much, much sooner, but I think sometimes the simplest things are often the hardest to find. And we hear that time and time again. I think this is the perfect illustration of that. But that's really one of those timeless le- timeless lessons that uh, fraud examiners need to keep in mind. And we're thankful that you were able to put it in such a fascinating and exciting format for us to review that lesson. Well, thank you. And I, I hope to um, be able to share it with um, a larger audience um, within your organization, too. So um, I hope more more is to come. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us today, Kelly. Um, I know a lot of us have followed this specific case when it was happening, um, and we really appreciate you sharing your personal perspective and experience with it, having made the documentary and and talking to all the people that were involved. Um, This is a really unique look at the case, and we appreciate you sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Kelly, and thank you to all of you listening. You can find all our Fraud Talk episodes on iTunes, and be sure to check out the episode details at acfe.com slash podcast. This is Andy McNeil, and we will talk to you again next month.